Hi folks, Jack Spierko here. Today you are listening to an episode of TSP Rewind. <laughs> Commercial-free versions of past episodes, podcasts, blasts from the past. I put these up when I can't do a show due to professional commitments or rare vacations. These podcasts will appear in standard iTunes, Stitcher, and other feeds, but will be titled TSP Rewind Episodes and numbered accordingly. And today, folks, we're rewinding back to October the 2nd, 2018. As promised yesterday, this is part two in the original two-part series, The Basics of Being Prepared for Most Things. Yesterday's episode focused on the what more than anything else. These are the These are the things that we need, and this is how to think about those things. This is how to categorize those things. This is how to come up with the inventory that you need. This is how to look at you know, um, things like um, the inverse relationship between uh, severity of disaster and commonality of disaster. Here's how to look at the commonalities as far as the things that go in short supply, etc. Today's version is more of the how and the organizational structure around those things so that everything can be implemented properly. We talked today about procedures and protocols. We talk about logistics. It's a term that people throw around. Most people don't even know what it means. Uh, we talk about documentation. We talk about a bug out bag. We talk about communications. We talk about a lot of other great things. As far as the reasoning behind these two episodes, since I covered that tomorrow, I'm going to be very brief with the new introduction today, cutting it off there. Let me remind you guys, while these episodes of Rewind are commercial free, you can always support us. How? Just do your online shopping at tspaz.com. With that, let's go ahead and rewind back to October 2nd, 2018, the basics of being prepared for most things, part two. And from there, let's jump right on into the episode and start talking about this stuff. I, I kind of want to just do a little bit of a rehash from the first episode here with the reasoning behind being prepared. And the way I try to explain this to people, when we just talk about just natural disasters, not a, a truck full of chemicals spilled, not some court case came down and there's rights, because these are all legitimate things too, but just from a standpoint of natural disasters, hurricanes, tornadoes, windstorms, ice storms, blizzards, we don't really have a disaster season. We have disasters that tend to be seasonal. So we do tend to get more storms in the spring from a standpoint of like tornadic storms than we do in the winter. We don't think of Christmas... Uh, as a time when we have tornadoes. You don't think of winter in general as a time for tornadoes. But in 2015, in the three days following Christmas, we had the December 2015 North American Storm Complex. In three days, we had a total of 32 tornadoes confirmed, 60 people died, and hundreds of homes were destroyed. I remember that very well. And I'm going to talk about it a little bit as we get into today's episode because that storm complex passed right over uh, my property and didn't really do a lot of damage out here. It started touching down tornadoes as it got east of us by about 40 miles. But that meant people that, that I know personally uh, had homes destroyed during that tornadic storm breakout. And there was more stuff coming behind it. There was like it was one of these things where you have multiple squall lines, and again, this the whole episode happened over three days, but we had bad enough weather here to knock our power out, and I knew from looking at 
the tele the the the, the phone because I could I, I still had uh, you know uh, cell phone access which we'll talk about today as well by looking at the radar I knew there was still development behind it but I really needed more information than that and some of the things we're going to talk about today uh, help you in those types of situations. If you haven't listened to part one yet, I really encourage you to do so. If somebody shared these with you and you just thought this one sounded more interesting, I appreciate that. But go back and listen to the other one first. Uh, for those of you um, on the, you know, for the regular audience members, there will be a commercial-free version of this one, just like I put together for the last one. They'll both be in one place where you can share them. Uh, just so you know, that probably will happen tomorrow if you're listening to this in real time, uh, because I got a lot going on this week. But so there you go. Anyway. I want to talk more on planning than stuff today. Last last time we talked a lot about stuff. We talked about you know energy, and you know I say your six survival needs. When you te when you learn you know wilderness survival, they teach you five survival needs, and that's because they figure you know enough to go take a dump in the woods, not next to where you're you're building your campfire, because they leave out health and sanitation. But energy comes from fire. Okay, When we talk about wilderness survival, we use, for that survival, need fire. We expand it when we come into home disaster preparedness, because what fire really represents in the wilderness is energy. You can cook with it, you can heat with it, and you can fabricate with it. And it provides some level of security, even though it's a separate need, and it provides some level of um, morale boosting as well. Well, if you think about it, That's exactly what energy in your home does. You can cook with it. You can fabricate with it, right? It keeps you warm, and it keeps you cool uh, in some situations as well, and it's definitely a morale booster. Uh, if, you, if you have the ability to at least have some of the basic communications and things like that, to know what's going on, if you're stuck in a place, you do feel a little bit better. The kids feel a little bit better, et cetera. So we, we took that approach, and we took that approach of let's break down all of these, these survival needs, food, water, shelter, energy, security, health and sanitation. And we've looked at the things mostly, not all exclusively, but mostly what we need. Today we want to pull back and look more at the planning. And we talk about planning, what we're really talking about is logistics. And logistics is a word that a lot of people throw around, but I don't even think they know generally the most basic definition of the word logistics. It is the detailed coordination of a complex operation. That is what logistics is. And the reason most people won't think of their family and their disaster planning in, in the realm of logistics once they get that is, well, it's not that complex. That's, that's how people think about it. You know, if we have to leave, we pack the kids up and we go. What about the dogs? Oh, I hadn't thought of that. Well, they're going too. Okay, how much room does that leave in your car? That's just one example. And when you look at logistics, it's not an all-or-nothing thing. It's what do we do for all of the complexities. So what about, hey, it's going to snow really bad, and we're probably not going to be leaving the house for a couple days. Uh, most people's logistics uh, end up being this way. We're going to go out and get milk and bread. This is not a plan. This is a reaction. This is why all the milk and bread disappears. Because everybody has the same reaction, but they really don't know why they're having that reaction. They really don't get why they're having that reaction. Like, do, do, you, do you live on milk and bread um, if you're going to be snowed in? Your typical snow event, you know, where people are going to be snowed in for two or three days. Like, do people really live with only two to three days worth of milk and bread in their home on a regular basis? See, I don't actually think they do. 
I think a lot of people that run out and buy two gallons of milk and four loaves of bread when it's, when it's going to snow probably had plenty of milk and bread to get through that period at home, and they didn't know what else to do. So they went out and they did something because they have no logistical planning. They have no thought process in place as to what, that they, what they should do. And when we have a thought process in place, it leads us to, to, to continue down the, the, in the best way possible the rat hole of figuring all these things out. If this, then that. What if this occurs? Then we will do that. And when you start to actually do it, you realize how complex it is. Well, you know, we pack the kids up and go, well, what if there's a compelling reason that we need to get out of here and one of the kids is at dance recital and the other kid's at football practice and mom's still at work and dad is at football practice and the, the, the younger kid that's at dance uh, rehearsal is with a family friend. How do we handle that? We haven't even tried to get complex, and you see the complex layers begin to form. And the good news is we don't have to have, like, an Army technical manual level of documentation here, but we need to at least think, like, what would we do? Because this is, this is the reality of the human mind. This is why this logistical component is as important or maybe more important than the stuff component we did last week. If you have previously gone through something in your mind, if there is a ice storm on the way, and we know that it is most probable that the electricity will go out, in advance of that storm, these are the things that we will do. And if these things fail, these are the things that we will rely on next, and this is how we will get through it, and this is how we will deal with it for three days, for six days, for ten days. Right, and most people, ten days, or, or you know, you're they're about you're done with even the worst ice storm. Okay, when it now happens, you don't go into a panic mode, and your brain doesn't kind of lock up and seize up with. I was a diesel mechanic in the army. There's a phenomenon we call vapor lock, and I think it's very analogous to what happens to the human brain when they're confronted with a situation they have not previously considered, and that situation is imminent. Well, now, shit, I don't know what to do. And because I don't know what to do, the mind locks instead of goes into troubleshooting, problem-solving mode. When we can sit back and say in advance, in let's say July, well, if there's an ice storm this winter, how will we handle it? Since there's no stress, the mind is free to work. Now, once the mind works out these scenarios, and then we talk about it with our family, and we put things into place so that it can be done and can be implemented, When we're faced with that reality, the mind simply goes back to those synopsis that were formed at that moment and begins acting. And then if something interrupts that action, where there's something that needs to be adjusted to, the adjustment is relatively easy. We've already thought this through. We've already been through this. So that's the thing. When we go through it in our minds, when we go through it in our minds, it's not the same as going through it for real, but on some level in the mental computer that we're programming, and that's like the most important thing to understand today, your brain is a mental computer, and you program your brain with words. Whatever your native language that you speak on a daily basis is, is the primary means by which we program our brain. There's other forms of more rudimentary programming. You touch something hot, it burns you. When you see something that looks like that again, you tend to be careful before you touch it. However, there's probably been some reinforcement verbal programming that was done. Have you ever thought about this? When you think in your head, you think in words. If you were to think of a blue balloon, 
You generally don't first see an image of a blue balloon. You say to yourself in your head, a blue balloon, and then maybe you form an image of it. Well, all of this works that way. So a big part of the entire component of logistics is simply going through the possible scenarios that you would have to go through, discussing them with family and coming up with a plan. This is what we would do. And this would be your job, by the way, when this happens. And then that program has been executed like a simulation in your mind, in your mental computer. So the mind feels that it has gone through this before. And it has survived going through this before. And so when you're placed in a position where you're going to have to go through it, your mind says, this is what we did last time, even though you didn't do it. And it begins to set you into a course of action. And the action breeds confidence, and the confidence breeds new ideas, and the new ideas breeds your way through the event. It's actually really complex from a standpoint of how that all works, But from a standpoint of making it work, it's really simple. That's what the brain is. It's the most complex computer with the easiest operating system. If you think about how complex the computer is that teaches you how to walk, but once you know how to walk, accessing that file is, is easy. Unless something damages if you get injured in some way. And, and that's what you've got. You've got the most advanced computer known to humankind in the human brain. With a programming language, it's universal and the easiest operating and programming system that exists. So use it. So let's start talking about some of the components of the logistics here. How about this? Who's in charge? A chain of command. When you're in the military, this is easy. Sergeant outranks a corporal or a specialist. Therefore, the sergeant's in command. If you have a corporal and a specialist who otherwise are equal, even though they're both what's called an E4 grade, since the corporal is a, is a NCO versus a junior NCO, the corporal's in charge. If you have two specialists or two corporals, who's been in rank longer, right? If you, if you both got promoted on the same day and you've been time and grade and time in service, like you joined on the same day, there's tiebreakers, like even more than in NFL playoffs, right? So you got two corporals, they enlisted on the same day. They were promoted on the same day, so they've been in rank for the same day. They're equal. Okay, fine, who's older? And if it comes down to I was born one minute, one minute Before you, I am older, I am in charge, if everything else in the chain of command is broken down and now we're left with us. There's also situations where somebody has been appointed to a leadership position and is in charge even if someone else maybe is the same rank as them. So you might have a squad leader that has other people that are equal rank. However, those people, uh, even if they have a longer time in, in grade or service, they've been placed under them by someone in command. And so this command structure is really easy. So if ten soldiers end up screwed, and they don't know what to do, and they're all in some place, and someone needs to take command, those ten soldiers in about five seconds can figure out who's in charge. And that works for the military. It doesn't work for your family. Because what you're going to say is, well, the parents are in charge. Okay, and of charge what? Is there things that mom's better at than dad, and things that dad's better at than mom? Great, then mom's in charge of those things, dad's in charge of these things. Who breaks the tie when there's a disagreement in the family? Well, you can handle that as you go, or you can have a general consensus that if it's in an area of specific expertise, that because you've got to make a decision now in a disaster. But here's where it actually gets complex. Dad and mom are taken out of the equation for some reason. Can't get home. Get in a wreck, and they're both unconscious. 
Who's in charge? The oldest kid? Even if that's the answer, don't you think it really would be important that the other kids know that? Because then they'll listen. See, people want to be led, but they need to have confidence in leadership, and therefore they need to understand this is a leader and this person is prepared to lead. This is why it works in the military. Those two corporals who had to figure out what the tie break was, in the end they don't really care. And the soldiers beneath them don't really care because they've both been in the military long enough in their mission to know what the hell they're doing. So you also have to have then take a look at the capability of the individual and say, if all this fails, then this is who you call. This is who you rely on. But you're in charge until they get here. Whatever it is. You have to have a chain of command. And it may not be the oldest child. You know, if you have kids that are both in their teens and they're within a couple of years of each other and one is a lot better... Uh, motivated and trained and responsible just because they're younger doesn't mean they wouldn't be in charge and maybe the other person needs to know that one way or another you need a chain of command you need to have a plan for if you have to leave what goes and what stays the, the, the time to make the decision of what you take with you if you have to leave is not in the five minutes you have after the sheriff knocks on your door and says you're being mandatorily evacuated And the whole attitude of, well, I'm not leaving. That's stupid. Do you want to die? And even if you do, if you have kids, do you want your kids to die because you're stubborn and stupid? So people sit there and they panic, and then they leave things they really need, and they take things they really don't. Because they haven't run the, the, the simulation in the mind first. So you need to sit, and I believe writing as much of this down as possible. What stays and what goes? What absolutely has to go? From a standpoint of, I want to protect it, and from a standpoint of, we need it. And again, you got to think about things like your animals. Because people say, well, I'm taking my animals. Okay, they need to eat, they need water, they need space. Do they get in a vehicle on their own, or do you have to force them in a vehicle? You know, what does their support infrastructure look like, and what does that do to the stuff you need to take with you? I'm with you. I don't think I think if you can't figure out how to take your animals with you in a disaster, you don't need to have animals. Now I'm not talking about you know live chickens and stuff like that, okay? But dogs, cats, things that rely on you 100%. And if you do have to leave something behind, like it, there's no way I could evacuate here right now. We have 10 ducks. Well, what do you do? Is the plan will we take all the food we have and dump it on the ground for them and they do the best they can? It might be. But that's then you have to have a plan for that. What stays and what goes? And what do you do for what's left behind? You might find there's things that you really don't want to leave behind. But you only want to leave, not leave them behind because you want them protected. Do you move them then to a place where they're protected no matter what happens? So even if you come back to nothing but rubble, somewhere in that rubble will be a box that has those things. Do you move them off-site to a more secure form of protection? Do you create duplicates of them? You see what I'm saying? You have to have these conversations. You have to put this information into the computer before it's required. Plants for bugging in and bugging out. Bugging in, we stay put. Bugging out, we get out. One of the biggest things here, though, is people end up doing one because they haven't planned for the other. There are people who don't leave, and it's often the case that it's more often the case than the other way around, that it is people stay when they should go. Very few times do I think people leave when they should stay. But when you have no plan for evacuation, and you're kind of on that, especially like when you're on that edge, like you're just outside of the mandatory evacuation zone, 
But, you know, like that's the best guess they have, and it doesn't mean everything will be wonderful. And you really should leave, but you've never run the simulations, and you don't know what you should do, where you would go, how you would get there, what would be done with the stuff that you left behind, how it would impact you. You don't, haven't thought of all that? Then people stay that damn well know they should leave. They're the people that end up on a roof waiting for somebody to come get them in a boat. They knew they should have left. They absolutely knew it. Even when they say they didn't. That's just because people don't like to admit what they did wrong. They knew they should have left, but they never thought about it sufficiently that they were comfortable doing it. You don't run the simulation. The mind feels like this has never been done before. Therefore, this is dangerous. Therefore, it's resistant. Therefore, unless somebody's pointing a gun at you to make you do it, you fail to act, and you end up stuck and stranded behind. So if we have the plan for bugging out, and we have the plan for bugging in, and we've run the simulations in our mind, and we know what both of them look like, and then we use our human common sense to look forward at a disaster and say, this is the implications of what's coming, and we put that into the computer and run both scenarios in our head, we're able to quickly make a good decision. Is it the best decision? It doesn't matter. Is it a good decision? Because when bugging out always comes down to this. When, when leaving makes it more likely that you will survive and not end up re requiring someone else to come rescue you, then staying, then you leave. When that is not the case, you probably stay. And if you've run those scenarios, it will become abundantly clear to you which one of those you're under. Well, I'm far from the coast. There's a hurricane coming. But they said there's flood. There's a river back there. Get out! Go! Leave! Now! So that one of our team members don't have to come pull your ass off a roof. But if you haven't thought about it, you end up on that roof, if you're lucky. If you're lucky. And your family and your animals and the people around you suffer. Because the people that like have no capability to ever do what I'm asking you to do, there's people that just won't do it. They won't. They're not capable of thinking this way because they're so rooted into their lives. If you had me scream at them for a month, they still wouldn't wake up. They would still say, okay, that person, their life matters, even though they're willfully ignorant to these risks. Well, if you're getting your ass pulled off a roof, they're not. So it's as much for you and your family as those who will be stuck anyway. Don't be part of the rescue requirement. Be part of the rescue effort in some way. Even if it is simply by your absence of need for first responders to spend time on you. It starts with planning. And then you need to understand when protocols are implemented and what they are. We talked about this some in the last episode, but let's go through some examples. Increased security. What does an increased security protocol look like? So maybe there's been a storm, and there's some looting going on, and there's people kind of moving around, and you don't want your daughter, your pretty teenage daughter, outside in the, in the parking lot or the driveway alone. When normally you don't have a problem with that in your neighborhood. You live in a nice neighborhood. What does increased security, does that mean she doesn't go outside? Does that mean she doesn't go outside without you or her older brother or her mother? Does that mean that maybe you're not generally armed, but now you are? Does that mean that lights go on at a certain time and off at a certain, what does it, and I'm not going to tell you what it means. I'm saying you need to figure it out. What does increased security look like? I'm not talking about paranoia. I'm not talking about like recreating Red Dawn and now the Russians or the North Koreans or whoever the hell they make the movie about next are coming. And you need to be prepared for you know, a World War III scenario. I'm talking about, hey, things are not quite as safe as they were. I'm talking about, hey, you know you guys made it through the storm? Kind of okay. 
There's a lot of sharp pointed things out there. There's a lot of floodwaters, and a cut could result in not just the injury of the cut, but a serious infection. What does increased security look like in these situations? Simply asking the question and thinking about it, and if you have kids that are old enough and your spouse sitting down and talking about it, begins to prime the mental computer, it starts to enter the programming, and the programming starts to deliver solutions. It's the, Again, your brain is the most powerful computer we can conceive of at this point. And as soon as you ask it a question, it starts searching for answers. This is why when a, a, a TV show or a series or a movie ends in a cliffhanger, especially if it's the, there won't be another episode, your mind starts trying to create scenarios. What, well, what did happen? Because the mind wants an answer. Put that to productive use. Disney will tell you what to think about you know, episode 27 or whatever. Worry about episode two of your life when there's a disaster. All hands on deck. What does that mean? That means we need to get everybody together. Some shit's going down and we need everybody home. What does that look like? How do we contact everybody? How, do, how, do, how does the family know? This isn't a typical, I want you home by 5 for dinner, and if you're home at 5.30, you might get yelled at, but you're okay. This is some something serious is going on. How do they know that? How do they convey to you, I can't get there? What do you do if they can't? Do you go to the, how does this work? People are spread out, five different locations, and you have to evacuate. Something sudden came up. How do you get back together? Where do you get back together? That's your all hands on deck protocol. They might not be on the deck. I'm using it just as a simplification, but we're going to get everybody together. What about power outage? Something simple. Instead of getting so so serious, just so the power just goes out. It is 8 o'clock at night, so it's dark. What do you do? Well, is it summer or is it winter? Depending on where you live, doesn't that matter? So what is it? I'll give you a, an actual scenario that went down one night, and I realized how well we had planned this because I didn't say a word. We were still living in Arlington, Texas, just before our, our, our brief sabbatical to Arkansas, and we came back to Texas now. Um, but it was the middle of winter, and it was it was pretty cold out. It was like low 20s. It was about 9.30, 10 o'clock at night, and we're just sitting around, and there was no real reason for it. It was kind of windy, though. Power just shuts off. I get up, and I head straight to the blackout kit. I start pulling out lanterns and stuff like that, Power failure lights light up the living room enough for everybody to see. My son just gets up off his ass, walks into the garage, grabs a fire log, like one of the, like the, the, the ones you buy from Walmart that burns for like three hours on its own, puts it in the fireplace. I'm now getting out all of the, the flashlights and stuff. Walks out on the porch, picks up like five pieces of wood, surrounds the fire log, and lights it. Made sure he opened the flume so we didn't get smoked out. There had nothing else to do at this point, right, for him. That fire is going to work. Now, he actually knows how to build a fire, and he could have took his time, but he knew we had a fire log, so I, I need to be here for the family. Next thing I did, I went out in the driveway, pulled the um, generator around the back of the house. Kid grabs the box that's got all the blackout kit shit in it, and whips a freaking extension cord out to me. My wife's sitting there watching this, like, what the hell? Right? <laughs> There's power. Three ways go in, on goes the TV set. 
TV set goes on, plug cable box in, cable's not working. I guess their power's out. Okay, boom, rabbit ears, switch the TV, put on uh, the you know, local channel like Fox or NBC or CBS. What the hell is going on? And it was near Christmas, so we plugged a Christmas tree in. The Christmas tree lit up, and now we could see better, too. And then we all sat down and just started, you know, hey, what's going on? There was no discussion. There was no discussion. It's like, hey, we need heat, we need light. Those are the first two things, and then we'll figure it out. Because we had talked about it. That's all we had done is we had just simply talked about what we would do. And that level of planning is so critical to getting through from the mundane to the insane. How about pet needs? Again, I've talked about you know being able to take your animals with you. Do they need a carrier? Do they need a leash? Where is their leash? How do you deal with your pets in different scenarios? Including your pet's needs when you're bugging in in a bad situation. Is your dog a really good guard dog that won't leave the property? Maybe he needs to be out in the backyard. Or if you have a perimeter fence, he needs to be out in the yard, period. Because he's good at what he does. Maybe he needs to be inside because his dog gets himself into trouble. I mean, just simple thinking about this stuff. And your critical systems. What are things that rely on power to run at your home? That have severe consequences if they're down for any length of time, or the longer they're down, the more the severe the consequence. An example is a refrigerator and a freezer. This is why we talked about backup power last week. If your power goes off for two days, the consequences of your, your food and your refrigerator freezer, in general, ain't that bad. Throw a bunch of moving blankets up on top of it and, and eat the ice cream first and start eating stuff as it defrosts, and you're okay. But if it's a week, you know, if you live a place where this is probable, then you might really think about having you know, a backup generator or an inverter for your vehicle. At least, and make sure that inverter will run your refrigerator from your vehicle a few hours a day. And we keep—we talked about it last time. We get, you keep the food safe, but that's a critical system. And whatever systems you have that are necessary, do you have some sort of a system that is for somebody's health that they need, and it has to have power for a medical need? These types of things—you have to have a plan for this. So these are examples of protocols. And again, it's when is it implemented and what does it look like? And remember, procedure is how you do something. Protocol is the procedures used under a given set of circumstances. So how you go to the store is a procedure. You probably don't put much thought into it. You get in the car and you go to the store. If there's something going on and maybe there's some active looting and stuff like that going on, either you don't go or you go in a different way. You implement a special protocol for a given situation. This is how to think about this. The keys. Practiced protocols work, even if they're only mentally practiced. The best case scenario is to actually run through drills and do them. This is how we train in the military. However, it's not practical to train every single scenario for your daily life. You have a life to live. But the mental simulation stands in for that. And reviewed protocols are not scary. You have people to think about beyond yourself, but you do have to control your own fear. If your kid is away from home and you need to get all hands on deck and you're implementing that protocol and you've never really thought about it before and you've never gone through it and you've never considered the scenarios, you're scared. 
Even if you do everything right, you're scared. When you're scared, you make mistakes. When you're scared, you make bad decisions. And when you're scared and you're communicating with somebody else, they feel, they sense, and they hear your fear, and it transfers to them. The last thing you want to do when something's going on that's not the best thing in the world is to be on the phone with your nine-year-old and transfer your fear to them. You want to have the protocol down. You know what you're doing. You have a plan. You're executing. You have confidence And therefore, you transfer your confidence to them. That way, when you say, I need you to go here, stay here, don't move, call me immediately if anything happens, they just go do it. Dad's got his shit together. Mom's got her shit together. They know what they're doing. They're going to take care of me. So the kid does the thing you need most. Follow your orders in the situation. A lot of people want to be their kid's friends. They want to be their wife's friend. They want to be their husband's friend. Absolutely, part of the relationship, there are situations where you are the one in charge and you have to act like a commander. And the other side needs you to. And when you review the protocols, look, if this ever happens, this is what we're going to do, then it's not scary to the child. Or even if it is, it, it's a controlled fear versus an uncontrollable fear. Okay, dad said this might happen. This is happening. I'm going to go do what dad said. And even if you do have everybody together, and you've got like the roof of your home coming off, but it's, you know, it's a storm that's going to suck, but you're going to get through it then everybody knows we have a plan for this. And the thing might be scary. It won't take away the fear of the thing. But, hey, we're going to do this now. Then this thing is the answer to the fear. Instead of being reactionary, it's now proactionary. And one of the other things that you really need to make sure that you have down from your protocols is documentation of how shit works. If you have a generator, then you should have, like, I know there's a little picture on it that shows the pull the choke out. Make a note card. Laminate it. The startup procedure for that generator. I don't care how many times you started it up. Make that card attached to that generator. Because when you're standing out in the rain with your kids screaming and crying and your wife yelling at the other kids screaming and crying and that other kid screaming and crying and you've got a flashlight in your teeth, and you're trying to remember where the extension cord is, and you're trying to start that generator, will you remember how to do it? Can you do it under stress? And people suck at doing things under stress. People suck at doing things that are really simple under stress. People suck at doing things under stress when they're things that they've done a lot. When they're things that you basically know how to do, but you've only done them a few times, you're terrible at it. This is another thing we learned in military training. We had you know, a, 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 a course called Combat Lifesavers. And when your final test, you'd go from casualty to casualties. were simulated casualties. And you would have a person grading you that would just give you feedback. You know, you do get a pulse, you don't get a pulse, because the guy can't stop his pulse, right? Okay, uh, Things like that. He's bleeding because you can't cut him open and make him really bleed. But there was another instructor there that was screaming at th things at you like, you're killing him, you're doing it wrong, you don't know what you're doing, you're an idiot, he's going to die because of you, even when you were doing it right, to put you under stress. And it's amazingly complicated to turn that off and do what you need to do, but that's what you need to be able to do. Well, you're not going to be able to do that with everything and every task that you need to execute. So anything that has any level of complexity at all, document it and put some kind of reminder in place. Make a list. Go in order. Put that list on your wall. Have a list to get out. Have a list when you're staying put. Have a just have a list. 
it, it, it does so much for you. If you're going on a camping trip, if you're going on a hunting trip, every year I go on a hunting trip, I know what to take with me. I've been going hunting since I was freaking 12 years old. I'm in my 40s. I know what to take. Still make a list. You know why? Because when you get you know, 250 miles, 300 miles from your house, and you don't have it, and you're 100 miles from the nearest you know, reasonable store, which some places I hunt, that's what it's like, well, you just, it's not easy to just go back and get it. It's just important that you don't forget it. It's really simple. Next, on documentation, this is the thing that costs almost nothing and yet is priceless. This is like the most important thing that you can do for your family preparedness is to have a documentation package. And there's an episode, and I, I did this long ago in the 100s, but I redid it, episode 1224. There's a link in the show notes today that gets down to the minutia of a documentation package. But I'm going to give you the overview of it today. First of all, this should be in hard copy and soft copy so that you can make changes easily on a computer, but you print them out. Get a three-ring binder notebook, one for every vehicle and one for the house, and treat it, even though I say you don't need one, treat it like an Army technical manual. If there is a change, you make the change, you plant, if you have three, you have two vehicles in the house, you print out three copies of the change. You go to your books, you open them up, you pull the old one out, and you put them in. They need to be uniform. If you change it, you change them all. Until you can change them all, you're probably better off leaving the new data out of it. So wait till the cars are home and everybody's home and everybody replace their copies. And you have to have this so that when you're on the phone with your 17-year-old daughter who's losing her shit, and but she has the car, you can say, turn to page 32. And she can read what you're saying. And you're seeing the same thing because, again, this instills confidence And it means she'll comply with what you're telling her to do because it looks like you got your shit together because you do. So I need you to meet me at this place. And here's how you get there. There's a map right there. If your phone's working, go ahead and put this address in your phone. I'll be there. That type of thing. This is this shit's going on in town. There's a riot. You're here. Do not come home that way. Here's another way to get home. You have all of this documented. You have all of this uniform. For evacuation, you have what I call rule X cubed. X to the third power. You have three different places you would go during a disaster that requires you to leave. One could be a hotel room. One could be your friend's house. One could be a general city, and you'll figure out what to do when you get there. If that's where you're at in your life and that's all you can do, fine. But you pick three places. They should be, in general, in three different primary ways away from where you live. Maybe one's east, one's north, and one's south. If you want to do four, go ahead. But three avenues of egress is probably sufficient. Then, each one of this is three, three, and three. Each one of those destinations, you should have three routes. Three different ways you can get there. So if something's really bad on route A, route alpha... You have Route Bravo and Route Charlie. Okay? So you have you have destination one, Route Alpha. That's and that's what you would tell somebody. And you might call it some other name, some friendly name, something that makes sense to you, whatever it is. But you would be able to tell your wife, I'm at work. Me coming home doesn't make sense right now. We're gonna take this route out of here. Pack up the kids, I'll meet you there. I'm gonna pick up Susie on my way. You get Jimmy and put him in the car. We'll rally together. 
So that's the next thing you need. Three rally points on each route. So for each route, you have three different places where you would meet. And you have a procedure and protocol for meeting there. Which is, we're going to take Route Alpha, because of the way I'm coming, we're not going to stop at Rally Point 1, we're going to stop at Rally Point 2. That's where we're going to meet up. We're going to stay in communication as much as possible to them. But that's where we're going to meet up. And then I really think you take it to another level by having something very simple that can be left behind. I don't know if it's a Pringles can, whatever it is, something that nobody's going to pick up. It looks like a piece of garbage, but it's unique enough to be spotted. You know, a Pringles can with a few wraps of tape around it. Something like that. What's that for? That means we can't talk. I was here, and I went to whatever the next place in the plan is. Why would you need that? Because you're parked somewhere. You're waiting for your partner. And law enforcement or the National Guard comes along and says, you can't stay here, but I'm waiting. We don't care. You have to go. Move along. You pick up the phone, it doesn't work. Okay? You toss it out. Mom gets there, looks, there's Dad's Pringles can. We're going to the next rally point. We'll keep trying to get in communication. But I already know, I already know, not to stay here, to not wait. He's been, he's gone, they moved him. Maybe the people that moved him have already left. And then when you pick up comms again, you're both still in route. You're still following the plan. This sounds complicated. It's actually really dead simple. You wonder why everybody doesn't do it. I guess the good news is everybody doesn't do it, so you won't have to look through a lot of different Pringles cans to figure out if one's yours or not. Um, I mean, my wife and I did a, a pretty simple version of this when we were hanging out on the beach. Much more simple version. Uh, she likes to walk, and I like to fish. There would be times I might have waded out like 100 yards, so I can't hear her, and I'm fishing. And maybe she just says she wants to take a walk. Well, if I come back in, and she's not there, and she's gone up or down the beach, we generally don't have our cell phones on the beach sand and water. We used to have a water bottle, and she just point the water bottle which way she went down the beach, and I just start walking. Well, I'm either going to catch up to her, or I'm going to catch her on the way back, but I haven't gone the wrong way. It's the same type of thing. It's just basic, simple stuff. Um, so you have three routes, three destinations, three rally points for each one. And if you want more on that, again, the, the episode 1224 goes through that. Contact info. Friends, family, anybody you would need to contact. Service providers. I mean, this is like somebody to fix the well, if you are on a well. Who, who do you call? If, if you buy a house with a well, you're going to find that your regular plumber may not be useful to you. Or if, if you have a septic system, you have unique plumbing needs. Who do you call? It doesn't always have to be a disaster that has you, you know, completely leaving. Maybe there's a problem and you've stayed put and you just need, you know, maybe you're not there. Maybe dad's incapacitated. Maybe dad got an accident and this minor thing for dad It's now a major thing for mom, but now mom opens the book. Oh, we call these people. Makes the phone call. Maybe the, one of the kids is old enough that while mom's at the hospital with dad, the kid can let the guy in that fixes it, and she knows it's safe because dad's already cleared it. And you're not trying to figure that out. Can you do it under stress? Can you find somebody to do something like that when you're under stress? If your spouse is laying in a hospital on life support because they went through an injury and a car wreck, That only affected you. Personal disaster. Most likely thing to happen to you. You are under stress. That's the last thing you need to have to worry about. So it's already done in advance. So service providers. Including people that would clear trees. I got a chainsaw. What if the tree fell through your roof and hit you while you were laying in your bed and now your wife can't get the car out to go get supplies even though the roads have been cleared? 
Well, they don't show up. They show up in the order that they're contacted. That's generally how things work. Storms happen, service providers start getting hit and requested to be out there. Same thing with hotels. They say you can't get a hotel during an evacuation. They're all booked up. Well, then who's in them? Who's in that hotel? If, if no one can get a hotel room, who's in the hotel room? The ma magical ninja fairy of unicorn land? No, the people that got there first. So if you know you've got a bug out and you have hot a hotel picked out, you know it's going to be a relatively short bug out. Or, you know what we're going to do? We're going to go to this hotel. We're going to get our shit together. We're going to see what happens. And then, if we can't come home, then we're going to figure out where we go next. But we're not going to end up as a refugee. And as soon as you make that decision, you start hitting the things that are in your documentation package, you're probably getting a room. Including if they track along with your meetups, your rally points, on the way out during a certain uh, 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 you know, avenue of evacuation. And if you do that, everything just starts to work. You need a list of items to take with you if you bug out. What are you going to take? What's going to go with you? You need, your, again, your lodging, your banks, and your bank contact information. And I believe your bank accounts are very valuable as well. Um, you can encrypt your bank account numbers and still have them written down. There's a bunch of different ways to do this. I'll give you one. It's called number off encryption. It will not keep the NSA from figuring it out, but it will be, it'll keep Joe, Joe Scumbag, who breaks into your car at work and pulls your binder out from under your seat, from figuring it out. You add a one and a dash to the beginning of your account number, and you add a zero to the end. And you put a dash in the middle, and it looks like a phone number. And you know that. And then you change the numbers by whatever your chosen frequency is. Positive three. So positive three would be if your numbers, uh, your, your first number was two, you'd change it to a five. If your next number was five, you'd change it to an eight. If your next number was nine, you'd change it to a two. Go around. And however you do it, as long as you do it uniformly and everybody in the family does it uniformly, anybody with that book can open it up. It looks like a phone number to the bank. You know it's not a second phone number to the bank to go with the first phone number to the bank. You know it's the account number so you can access the account, right? And you can decrypt it, and Joe Scumbag cannot. Never figured out. Multiple attempts at trying will result in him setting off all the red flags. What if he listens to your podcast? And he probably isn't Joe Scumbag. But he still doesn't know what your, what, your, what your off frequency is. And you can come up with your own. You can come up with anything as long as you always do it the same way and the family knows how it works. You can do credit card numbers. You can do whatever you need to do to make sure that that information is available. So make sure that type of information is there too. Don't be afraid to have it. Just make it so it's illegible to people that don't need to be able to use it. Um, again, you should have the stuff printed out and in soft copy and keep them uniform. Uh, let's talk about another piece of gear that's highly misunderstood, the bug-out bag. We talked about a lot of stuff last time. With a bug-out bag, you're talking about more stuff. But here's my rules for a bug-out bag, the, the simple rules, without getting deep into it. Number one, if you can walk, you can carry one. My granddaughter is two years old. If she was in my home, I would have already built her a bug-out bag. Because... If the family bugs out, she bugs out. How, how well my son has followed my instructions, I don't know. I don't know. When I think about it that way, I should build her one, and I should build the boy one, because they're here a lot of times anyway. And if you can walk, you can carry one. Now, 
The bug out bag of a two year old is going to look different than the bug out bag of an eight year old is going to look out differently than the bug out bag of a 16 year old is going to look different than a bug out bag of a 35 year old father of the family. Okay? I acknowledge that. But you can't be the person that carries all the shit for the whole family. And the little bit that the little bit can do is a lot. All the little stuff that's necessary for that child that they can carry. Not everything they need, but everything they can carry is one less thing for you to carry. Including if it's a little backpack that you put on a little bit and you pick a little bit up and carry her, now her shit's with her. Number two, what you want in a backpack is three days of relative comfort. I'm not going to get in all the line items and things like that. I'll look up an episode on bug out bags. I'll put it in the show notes. If you're listening to the shared version, somewhere where the shared version was, there'll be a link to all the stuff you need. Maybe just the official version of this episode so you can go there and see the links in, in these notes. That's probably what I'll do. But you can go through that. But if you think in this, this term, three days of relative comfort, not three-day vacation in Mexico. Three days of clothing, you might be wearing some of the same clothing over and over again. You don't need three pairs of pants and three pairs of shorts. But you probably need a pair of pants and a pair of shorts. You need undergarments. You need socks. Your shirts don't have to be snazzy, good-looking shirts. They're probably the stuff that still fits you. It's still serviceable, but you probably don't wear it. That's the best stuff. It's there. It's available. You know, And, and you can go through. You need to have a, a way to, to communicate, which we'll talk about in a second because we haven't done that yet. Backup energy, all of that good stuff. But basically... Could I take this bag and go to a school, be offered a cot to lay on, and pretty much be okay for three days? Not super happy, but not really feeling like I can't make it without someone else giving me something else. And you might even take it to the level of having some kind of a shelter or something like that. But in most of this, you can bug out with your vehicle, and your vehicle can be a shelter. So that'd be another way to think about it. If I had my car and this bag and I had driven somewhere and my battery died in my car and I had to just be there for three days and I knew at the end of three days someone was coming to get me, I would be okay. If you do that, you have a good bug out bag. If you are preparing to fight the Red Dawn War, you do not have a bug out bag. You have a battle pack and it's not going to last you three days in battle. Battle packs never do. And you're not going to have a battle anyway. Okay? Uh, if you have tried to create a bag where you can go live in the wilderness for the rest of your life as though you were on the lamb from the law, it's not possible and you're going to have a crappy bug out bag. If you think about it from the standpoint of, I am going to live in the waiting room of a hospital without vending machines and a cafe for three days, you'll probably have a pretty good vending, uh, bug out bag. You might not have all the things you might need if you are stuck in the outdoors. If you are if you are planning to be somewhere where you might be stuck without shelter, you have to take another level of planning. I'm talking about a regular, everyday, family, 72-hour kit per person. So have that in place. And it must live where you go or it is useless. If your bug-out bag is on the floor of your closet in your master bedroom, it is not useful to you. It needs to be in your vehicle. If you if it works for you, you take it up to your office and your place of work. If that doesn't work for you for whatever reason, 
then it stays in your vehicle. When you come home, it comes out of your vehicle and goes in your house. When you go to your friend's house for their kid's birthday party, it goes in your vehicle. And again, you can go through the components of a bug out bag, but that is, is absolutely imperative. And it is one of those things that pays dividends in the disasters that people don't think of. The number one reason, or the number one thing I've heard about bug out bags from my audience, I've been doing this for 10 years, I have almost 200,000 people a day listening to the show now, and the number one thing that people have used their bug out bag for was a family member or a close friend ended up in the hospital, and I had to rush them there or go there to be with them. And because I had my kit, I was able to just be there and be okay for a day or two or whatever it took until I could get enough of a breather to be okay with leaving and going to resupply. And it's not something we think about. But it's the angle that we need to be coming at, at with this. And that's why it needs to live where we live. Because when you're at work and your wife calls you, and tells you that your kid had an accident on the playground and had something go through their spleen and is laying on an operating table, you're not going home first. I'm trying to make it real. These are things that actually do happen. And it's no reason to put your kid in a bubble or wrap them in foam wrap, but you accept the fact that living as a human being is an inherently dangerous activity. We are relatively frail creatures and shit happens. We get cancer. We have heart attacks. We get into car accidents. Bad people do bad shit to us. Okay? So we're ready in case we need to go be with somebody. If we take that approach, if we just need to get out, we're in a, I would rather be evacuating my home because of a, of a potential hurricane and grabbing my 72-hour kit and all the other stuff and following my procedures and protocols and loading up my dogs and heading to Oklahoma then I would be heading to the hospital because my son has cancer. I would much rather be bugging out. So if we plan for that terrible scenario that just affects us, it puts us a long way toward being prepared through a, you know, a larger regional thing. Let's talk about communications. My belief is a firm belief that cell phones are in general best And what we need to have is a plan to keep our cell phone working. If we can keep it powered up and working most of the time, we will be okay. In most disasters, cell phones are the, one of the last things not to work. It doesn't mean they will always work. I am not saying that. If you're going to be in a place where they probably will not work, you probably, not definitely, but probably should have bugged out. When we had the ice storm in Arkansas, and we lived remotely where, where our cell signal was weak to begin with, and giant lodgepole pines came down everywhere. We were without power for seven days. Our cell phones worked. We have sent responders from Citizens Assisting Citizens into disaster relief areas for Hurricane Harvey and now Hurricane Florence. Most of the places those people were, most of the time, their cell phones worked. I had a company just reach out to me with a cell phone extender uh, product that we're going to be, I'm going to be installing into my truck. Uh, those types of things work really good. Whether I recommend this brand or not remains to be seen once I get the, the, the product installed. But that would be another thing to think about. But the biggest thing is backup power for your cell phone. And, you know, protocols. If it's going to be raining and flooding and shit, put your phone in a Ziploc bag if nothing else. I don't care if your phone's supposedly water-resistant, water-repellent, water-immune. 
put it in a bag and have a backup power solution. Use Zello. We have a Zello channel for TSP, the Survival Podcast Zello channel. Uh, the, the people on there are amazing. It's a great community. But you should set one up for your family. And I don't just mean your, your, your immediate family, your extended family, including family members that really aren't all hip about it. Let me see your phone. I'll install the app. I'll connect to it. I'm going to show you how it works. You can shut it off. But if shit goes on, look, turn it on, push this button, and start listening and start talking to us. You can forget about it until you need it. Set that up. What Zello is is like the old Nextel radios, where instead of I call you on the phone, anybody on that channel, when I mash a button, it goes, cheep, cheep, and I go, hi, this is Jack. And everybody that's logged in hears me talk. And anybody can answer me. You can set that up as a private channel. It is completely free. It is amazing as a tool. And the fact that when a disaster goes down, you could be able to communicate with your extended family and your immediate family instantaneously is awesome. That's why there should be a procedure and protocol This is when you turn it on. Even if you're not a big believer in it, when you turn the TV on and you see that we're being hit by a tornado or something like that, turn it on. Then you don't have to worry about it. You're not checking my Facebook profile, re reload, reload, reload to see if I'm alive. If I can communicate, if anybody in the immediate family can communicate, you'll be able to get in touch with us on this. So at least those extended people that are resistant, at least have them know the basic protocol. This is when you turn it on. And the fact that you could be evacuating... Dealing with your kids crying, the dog sniffling, your three hotels did not work out, you're still going down the road, and your aunt in Ohio could be looking ahead on a, on a, a functional computer with a keyboard, figuring out where you'd go next, and doing logistics for you while you're on the way out is invaluable. I'll just call her. Well, what if she's like your third or fourth or fifth in line, and everybody else fell down on the job? But she turned it on because she was worried, and she was the first one. To and and you're in now. How far you got to go gets shorter. It's a lot like in a different way. Of, I, I love metaphors to to explain things that people actually deal with. Have you ever gone to a restaurant and you know there's going to be a wait, and the rest of your family is lollygagging to get to the door? And maybe you're even a little bit of a dick like I am sometimes. You just go, I'll see you when you get there. And you kind of haul ass and go put your name on the list. And by the time your family gets there, five, six, seven people, and maybe it's, it's, it's Sunday after church, and a family with like 13 freaking people gets there before you. And if you hadn't got ahead and got on that list, your 20-minute wait in that, that, that one minute of them screwing off That 20-minute wait could become an hour and a half. Well, think of it when you're trying to, like, let's say, logistically track down the next available hotel that will let your dog stay there. Every five minutes might push you another 50 miles. That's how some of these disasters work. Where is gas available, etc.? Having that family able to communicate, it breeds confidence and allows other members of the family that are not in harm's way to perform logistics for the people that are. And it's free, and I don't understand why everybody in this community doesn't have the app on their phone and a group set up for their family. And if you don't have that, do it today. Z-E-L-L-O. Learn how it works. Teach your family. And if they don't want to use it day to day, that's fine. It's there for emergencies. Next. I know I'm going to hear it. Ham radio. Ham radio. 
Here's how I feel about ham radio. If you're a ham, great. You know what to do. You have the gear. You know how to communicate with it. You know how to get in touch with others. You're awesome. I respect what you do. If the person listening to this is not a ham radio operator and isn't going to be one tomorrow or the next day or by the end of next year, anything I say about it won't matter. Anything I say about it won't matter. So, if you're a ham, great. If you're not, okay. Rely on these other things. If you want to consider becoming a ham, I guarantee you there are people in your local area that will help you. It is one of the most tight-knit communities there is. It is one of the most evangelical communities that there is. They really love to spread their, 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 their thing. So much so that it's turned me off of it. When somebody starts telling me I need to do something constantly, and I have a million other things in my life I'm doing, and they get upset when you don't like make their thing the god of your thing, when they're that evangelical, then it kind of turns people off. So there's a little announcement for you ham guys. Back the hell off a little bit. Offer to show people. Offer to help people. But don't make like, well, you're nothing without this. Because that's how some of you come across. And it is a turnoff. I, to be fair, I probably wouldn't have done it anyway. I've looked at it. I understand. Not everybody's going to do everything. I love aquaponics. Most of you, most of you uh, uh, ham radio people do not have an aquaponics system. I think an aquaponic system is great. I think it grows an incredible amount of food. I think it brings a lot of joy to your life. I think it can be a beautiful feature in your, your, your landscape, in addition to being a production system. But I'm not going to shove it down your throat. So just an aside there. Again, if you're a ham, great. If you're not, anything I say about it is not going to matter. Next, when it comes to backup cell phone power, I, I believe that you should have, whether it is through, I, I recommend a product from a company called Anchor. And it will charge an iPhone six times. And I have yet to find a better product. But there are other products, and they work okay. I believe that you should have the capacity to completely charge every phone that you're going to rely on. So if you have one for mom and one for dad and one for teenage daughter, then each one of those you should be able to recharge at least four times as a bare minimum without having access to power. So if you have a fully charged pack, and that pack will charge your phone at least four times, you've tested it and you know it works, great. Then I'm back to two is one, one is none. What if that one fails? What if it burns up? That happens. So at least having one backup for the three, at least. The Anchor I recommend, again, it'll charge it six times. And yes, I've tested it, and yes, it works. But you should be able to do that. And you should have vehicle chargers, wall chargers. You should have the ability, if there's anything with electricity that's remotely capable of charging a phone, you should have a way to hook up to it and use it. If you have your vehicle with you, you know, as long as you don't run out of gas, you should be good to go with charging phones. I mean, you don't have to idle a vehicle very long to put enough charge in the battery to be able to charge an iPhone without draining the car down. So definitely have that backup cell phone power. FM, AM radio with multiple sets of batteries to be able to run that radio on low, lowest volume, for 48 hours. Figure out what it is. And I'm talking about an old school AM, FM transistor radio like, like is in the, uh, uh, what, what's, this, what's the, the band I'm thinking of now? I got off of my favorite cover for a second there, uh, Jimmy Buffett. Uh, no, Van Morrison, Brown Eyed Girl. Going down on the old man with a transistor radio, right? That I'm talking about a little handheld transistor radio that picks up AM and FM. 
If you want to get like a crank radio or something like that, it has a battery inside that you can charge by cranking or a solar panel on it or whatever, fine, fine. Have regular alkaline batteries for it. If you also have rechargeable AA, AAA, N-loop batteries, that type of thing, great. You should have them from the last podcast. But for that radio that may go with you, good quality alkaline batteries to run it for at least 48 hours. Longer is better. And earbuds for it. Old school, cheap, plug them in, stick them in your ears, and listen to earbuds. No, that's not the best thing in the world for you know brother and sister and everybody to gather around and listen to the radio like it's the 1930s. What it's for is extending the battery life of that radio. If you set the volume on one of those radios to as low as it can go and you can still hear it clearly with a set of earbuds in, you will more than double the battery life by turning the volume up to where you can sit down and listen to it for a little pop movie uh, uh, culture reference at a reasonable volume. All right? You want to be melted and listen to the radio at a reasonable volume, you will drain your batteries twice as fast as turning it almost all the way down and being able to hear it with your earbuds. So it's about conserving battery life. Including if you want to listen to the radio with everybody, but then we start to get where we have to ration. Got me? All right. The next thing is TV. At home, definitely. On the road, maybe. If you have a portable television solution, take it with you. As long as you don't have to give up something more important, take it with you. Have it as part of your planning, your documentation, your logistics for bugging out. But at home, definitely. Well, Jack, most people have a TV at home. I understand that. And most people have cable television. Get yourself a good digital antenna and test it. And figure out what TV stations you can get, how you get those TV stations to come on, what you need to do with that antenna. Do you need to run it out the window and hang it up with a, with a, like a, a craft clip or like a, a woodworking clamp? We, you know, where we live here, I can just we just have it attached to the TV. It sits behind the TV on the ground, behind the TV, up against the wall between the, the, the cabinet and the, and the wall. It's back there. It's not the best location for it. Doesn't get the best signal like that. But if, if we can't run cable, I can reach back there, pull it out, and point it at the window and turn it on and get like eight channels. Because there's a lot of good off-air signal around here. When we lived in Arkansas, what I had to do, I had a cord for it long enough to reach the window that pointed toward Little Rock. And we were up on a mountain, and it wasn't something I wanted to live up all the time, but I got one of those big clamps from, like, Home Depot. And, I, and I'd run the cable out the window and put a towel over it so when I closed the window down, it didn't crush the cable. And I'd take that clamp, and I had a pole on my deck, and I clamped it to that pole, and I pointed it at Little Rock. And we got great signal. If I hadn't done that in advance, I wouldn't know. TV is not just about keeping the kids entertained, but it's useful for that. TV's not just about something to do, and it's useful for that. A lot of times during a disaster, one of the biggest things to do is keep morale up. It is also an incredibly important source of information. Now, I'm one of the biggest users of hashtag fake news. That's not a support of Donald Trump. That's an acknowledgment of reality. A lot of what the TV tells you is nonsensical bullshit. And even during a disaster, they like to sensationalize things. You know, that's where you have the guy standing up to his neck in the floodwaters, and there's a guy walking behind him in ankle-deep water. We know that happens. In general, though, your local stations, which is what you would be picking up like this, 
have the best on-the-ground information about what's going on, who needs to be contacted, what's coming next. I'll explain this to you now. We'll go back to where we started with the, with the, the storm complex of 2015. December 26th, 2015, you can go to my YouTube channel, you can see a video of this happening. This storm came through. I knew it was going to be bad. I was watching the television and you know, deciding whether or not we went to our safe area of the home, had the animals, make sure they were inside, all that good stuff. Some really serious straight-line winds came through. And I knew the storm was going to go tornadic. The straight-line winds were sufficient. Boom, power goes out. Not wanting to have to go drag the generator out, I backed my pickup truck up. I started it on idle. I ran extension cords. I have a battery backup power system in a toolbox of my truck. It runs off my alternator of my diesel truck. Could it just as easily been a Honda EU2000, a Troy-built whatever generator. Doesn't matter. Could have been a generator. I started it up, ran extension cords in the house. Got a couple lights on. My number one priority, though, get the TV on. I got the TV on. I plugged in the cable box. Cable modem does its sinking thing. No cable. Why? Whatever the hell blew down affected the cable TV too. Switch over to antenna, pull the antenna out, dust it off a little bit because it's been back there a while. Boom. Fox 4 weather. There's the guy with the radar map telling me what's going on. And I watched the tornado outbreak happen to my east, and I watched the storms developing to the west, and I, st I, st I was weather aware through the entire thing. Including, you know, during tornadic storms, you might have a very brief bug out scenario. People always say, stay put, anchor down. There are times when you have a, a, a serious threat of a tornado coming in from a specific place, and it's actually the smartest thing you can do, throw every, and it's not a big bug out, it's a short term, throw everything in the vehicle, and let's say head north, and haul ass north. And you know that if you get 30 miles north, in the next 30 minutes, you're clear. Well, if that's the case and you've run that scenario and you know that's what you're dealing with, you're not dealing with like a situation. And there's sometimes when the storms are completely, really crazy and you don't really know what you're heading into, well, then you, then you stay put and anchor down. We were able to watch. We were able to make those decisions. We were able to watch to the point where we knew those storms that were behind, those additional squall lines, were not going to go tornadic. They had begun to, to simmer down. The ones out in front of them pulled the energy out of them. By that point, I'm like, well, I don't know how long the power is going to be out, so now it's time that we've gotten that immediate need taken care of. Let's get the generator out. And in spite of how bad the storms were to our east, it ended up being the storms that came through here weren't that bad. By the time I was going to get the generator, the power came back on. Who knows how long that could have been out? And again, this storm complex in parts of the country lasted three days. Knowing what is going on is so critical in that situation. And weather radios are fine, and AM radio is fine, etc. Having a guy, a meteorologist, that in general does know what he's talking about, going, this storm is going tornadic right now, here's its cone of probability, you are or you are not in that, is massively important. And there's many other scenarios where you need to have that information that the best source to get it from is local news. So the fact that you can go buy a decent digital antenna for 50 bucks or less and put it on your TV and have that capacity 
back to what I said about this entire concept of preparedness. That being prepared is nothing but being a responsible adult. That's Spirko's seventh law of life. I have 30 laws of life that I teach. They're not all mine. Some of them I've written. Some of them I've heard from other people. But they are the things by which I live my life. And law seven is preparedness for hard times is nothing more than being a responsible adult. And if I said the F word on this podcast, and I generally do not, I would say a responsible effing adult. Because that's how much I feel passionate about it. Because I am, I, it hurts me to see people be hurt that didn't have to be. That's why I do the show. And what I want to end with is these two episodes are not everything, but they will lead you to put together in your life everything you need. Another one of my, my laws of life is what you do matters. No one cares about you and the people and the things that you love more than you do. And it's also true that you have a unique situation. There are commonalities of disaster. We talked about that last time. There are things that are common in, in, in what you end up doing without. The DPICS method works. But in the end, if you live in Florida, you're a lot more concerned about a hurricane than I am living in Fort Worth. Texas, hurricanes go together. Fort Worth, big impacts from hurricanes, not really a thing. Tornadic storms associated with a, a hurricane, yeah, but we have those even when there isn't one. If you live in Idaho, you're probably not that worried about tornadoes, and you probably shouldn't be. But you might want to think about ice storms. Where I live, we think about ice storms, but they're short duration. You know, we're, we're, where I live now, we're not going to have an ice storm that shuts the city down for 15 days. It's not likely anyway. I'm going to put more thought into tornadoes and flooding because they're more probable. So you do need to take this information and then tailor it to your family. My disaster planning was different when I had a, you know, a teenage son, pretty smart kid, living in our home because there were things I could rely upon him to do. Now he has his own family and his own house to take care of. So I can't rely on him, nor should I, and I need to adjust our protocols for the fact he's not going to be here. If you don't have animals, you don't have to worry about all the stuff I said about pets. If you do, you do. But if you'll take this approach... If you'll firm up your six primary survival needs with the things and the plans you need to go along with them, and you'll firm up your logistics with documentation, protocols and procedures, think about how to get in, how to get out, how to get back together, do some basic things, set up a bug out bag. If you do these things, you'll be better prepared than 99% of the population. But what you need to understand about that is you don't get anything in return for that. Like, if you're 99% better than everybody else in school, you get an A. You could be 99% better than everybody in the country, and if you get dead, you're still dead. You don't get an A. You don't get anything for effort. You're, you're, it's a 100% results-oriented solution. So if there is a critical key thing that you need, I didn't talk a lot about earthquakes. Personally, I'm not very worried about them. They don't happen here. The ones that do are insignificant. If you live in California, you need to think more about the protocols and procedures that go along with earthquake. So, But if you take this roadmap I've given you over the last two weeks, and you put it together, and you do these things first, and you go back and you use that mental computer, you use the gray matter between your ears that God gave you, you'll firm up those other things, and you'll get what I promised you in these two episodes. The basics of being prepared for most things. 
Yes, if a comet hits us from outer space and obliterates all life out of Earth, then it's not going to be enough. And it wouldn't matter anyway because it's, nothing would be enough. Even the guy that has the bunker in Montana, he's probably dead. Four wishes he was. So we're not going to worry about the things like that. Do we have enough in life to worry about? I, I, you know, I am more worried about, will the cost of the food that I feed my fish in my aquaponic system go up than I am about an interstellar asteroid or comet? I really am. Because if that happens, in general, my problems are over. I'll probably drink a beer and watch the light show and go out in a bang. But these other things, these are things we can do something about. And again, I want to just finish up with, if someone shared this with you, I want you to thank them. Even if you're not on board with doing it yet, if you took the time to listen to these two episodes, I want to tell you that there's a seed planted in you now. And at some point in your life, even if you don't do everything, you're going to do something. And at some point in your life, one of these things will pay off for you. And the person that shared it with you deserves a thank you for that. I get people all the time. They're always worried about their family and their friends. And, and their family and their friends largely think they're insane. They're not. Again, not being willing to do the thing that only humans can do, which is look forward and think about what could go wrong and make a plan if it does. Not doing that is what it is. The, literally the definition of insanity. It's like when you watch the thing and the, the forest is on fire and the fire's coming, everybody's trying to get grandma out of the rocker, and she's sitting there rocking back and forth and knitting, saying, everything's fine, we don't need to leave. You're like, grandma's nuts. Grab grandma and drag her out. The fire doesn't have to be that close before you realize that it's there. Uh, last but not least, let's, let's talk about our song today. Song today is by Jackson Brown. Jackson Brown is one of my all-time favorite musicians. I love his sound. I love the fact the guy's still making music and he still hasn't missed a beat. Uh, a couple years ago, I went to what will probably be my last Jimmy Buffett concert. If you're new to the show, you may not know this. I am a massive fan of Jimmy Buffett. I, I am a parrot head to the extreme. If I have to explain, you wouldn't understand level parrot head. Um, I love Jimmy Buffett's music, and I love a lot of the music that people that aren't real fans have never heard. You know, there's like the ten songs you know by heart, but there's so much wonderful deep music that Jimmy Buffett does. But I'm I'm probably never going to a concert again. The last Jimmy Buffett concert I went to, he didn't want to play any of the music people really wanted to hear because I guess he's tired of it. Uh, he was missing words to his own song, and he didn't quite have it anymore. I think it's time for him to, to, to either. And I, I, to be fair, the guy's still doing like 280 shows a year. It's time for him to do maybe 80, 90 shows a year, and and then he probably can be as good as he was. Jackson Brown opened for him. Jackson Brown has been around since the early 70s, and live he was as good as he would have been in 1975. Awesome. The song I have is a relatively new song for him, and it's called Off of Wonderland. And uh, I had actually never heard this song until John Adam brought it to my attention. This song was released in 2008. Here's what Jackson Brown himself has to say about this. In this song, Brown harks back to the 60s. When the nation's hopes were raised by political figure, figures such as the Kennedys and Martin Luther King and addresses the way the world has changed, Brown explained to American Songwriter Magazine, quote, There is the impulse to be a force of good in the world. There is a lot of loving, hardworking people with these impulses who need to pay attention to what's being done in their name. There was a moment when people let go of some of their optimism and idealism, and a lot of things weren't really addressed. They'd killed King and Kennedy. What was happening to us? And again, the, the title of the song is Off of Wonderland. 
And I think that what, what Brown's talking about here is there was a time when we had so much belief that we would be good, we would be decent, we would fix our problems, that people literally were able to live and, and, and grow off of just that belief. And somewhere along the way, we lost that belief in ourselves. I think that's true. I also think it's a part of growing up. That only so much progress can be made at any one time by any one generation. And some people, when they come to that realization, they, they, they come to it from a standpoint more like this song. They're like, it's, like, it's just gone. And then some realize, well, then it's important that we do our part for what we can do at this time. That we make the most of our dash. That's what the song says to me. Love to hear what it says to you in the show notes today. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help me figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. It was easy for me Up so high over